All right, kids, welcome back to the Mark Claire Show. I've got a big one for you today, a monster program. This one went so long, and I didn't want to cut it off for the public, so no smilk food room for the premium subscribers today, unfortunately, but... When I say unfortunately, it just means more content all around for everybody. So you got almost a two-hour breakdown today of the movie Full Metal Jacket continuing in the Cracking Kubrick series. This one with my friend Don the Pleb. Bang. It's a banger. You're going to love this one. And since I didn't do a smoke-filled room, I want to keep this show going. I am going to be doing an Ask Me Anything this week for Mark Claire Show Premium subscribers. Again, you can subscribe in all sorts of places. we got the standard spots on Patreon, Subscribestar, and Rockfin, where you can get all of the premium content. Now, you can also join in a couple other ways. You can support the show on YouTube. You can become a member for as long as they let us stay up there. And you can also subscribe directly on Apple Podcasts. So you're just a button away from having that entire uh, MCS bonus feed just pop up in your normal podcast feed. A really simple way for you to do it. So pick your poison however you like, but we got lots of great content there. Most shows, 95% of them have the uh, smoke-filled room bonus segment. This one does not because like I said, we went almost two hours breaking this movie down and I wanted to make sure you got all of it, every little morsel of it. So that being said, my friends, before we get into the show, I want to remind you about our great sponsors, Fox and Sons Coffee. I spent an hour on the phone with Stephen Fox the other day, and I locked him in for a full year as a sponsor of this show. And I want to tell you, man to man, man to audience, or whatever you might say, uh, Steve is a real one. He's a great guy who is working hard to lead by example, teach his sons about entrepreneurship, and find new ways to provide for his family, as I am as well. So he's a real one, is what I'll say. So you got to check out his coffee. Go over to foxandsons.com. Use that discount code MCS to get 18% off your order. You're also going to get free shipping on any order over $37.99. My friends, you do not want to miss out on this one. Support a great man, a great friend of the show, and fantastic coffee that I mentioned. I'm wide awake right now because I just had a cup of this Mexican bean that just arrived to my house. So check it out, foxandsons.com, and my friends, enjoy today's show. Welcome back, friends. I've got quite a show for you today. And I got a very special guest to go through another edition of the Cracking Kubrick, Kubrick series, as I'm calling it. Today, I'm going to be looking at the movie Full Metal Jacket. And of course, if I'm going to go through a movie like that, I got to bring on a real live Marine. I got Don the Pleb here. Don, welcome to the Mark Claire Show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Uh, I couldn't be happier to discuss this movie like basically every other Marine who has lived since it was released. And I kind of thought to myself, is it is it stereotypical to assume any Marine is going to have seen and loved this movie? But it it seems like it's you know one of those stereotypes that's accurate. Oh no, it really is. Uh, I I can't think of any. Well, I don't know. I'm sure there's somebody out there, right? You know, there's always one guy. Who, well, I hated the Marine Corps and Full Metal Jacket and everything to do with the Marine Corps. Man, fuck that guy. But everybody else, no, we all love this movie. I imagine it's always the guy you'd expect. Yeah, basically. <laughs> A certain <laughs> physiognomy or what have you. You're probably the same guy that got triple boosted, you know? Yes. Uh, almost 100% guaranteed. The, <laughs> uh, the, I, I know like one guy that this probably applies to. And sure enough, he contacted me after many years of not speaking to him. was like, so you're getting the vaccine, right? And I was like, what? The, I haven't talked to you in like 10 years. Fuck right off. And that's, the, that's what you reach out about. Jeez. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's the important thing, right? Yeah. Don, maybe yeah, since it is your first time here, I know we spoke uh, when I was doing the Silly Libertarian show back in the day, but maybe you can just uh, introduce yourself a little bit to this audience. And of course, go maybe detail a little bit of your experience that is uh, relevant to this movie that we're going to be talking about today. Sure. Uh, I am the guy that used to host the Pleb Media Type podcast, Don the Pleb, otherwise known as Don Workman. Uh, I was an active duty Marine from 2008 to 2012. 
Uh, during that time, shockingly, I went to boot camp. I also went to Afghanistan, uh, spent some time there, blown some stuff up. I was an artilleryman, um, which is a little bit less covered in the movie, but uh, no less. I, I still like and talk about big giant guns because there's nothing in this world like 155 millimeter. Don't know how else to say that. It's just true. You can find me these days basically only on Twitter slash X slash whatever the hell it's called now uh, at at Hilo Procurement, all one word. All right. Well, Don, uh, before I dive into this particular film, I know you've obviously seen it before, but how familiar overall was Were you just a fan of this movie because of the rain stuff or do you, are you a larger fan of Kubrick's work at all? Uh, I am generally a larger fan of uh, Kubrick's work. Um, I am. I'm not a particularly great fan of anything, though. So, uh, if you if you get particularly esoteric on me, I will fall off immediately. Um, and I, I have become that mean old man that doesn't watch movie or TV. So, well, this is one out of all of Kubrick's films. Then there's probably meaning in this that I don't see and symbolism that I'm missing, but I, I'm looking for it. I was looking for it in my last look, and I would say of all his films, this is the one with the least hidden meaning. I think, I mean, there's meaning, but I think it's a little more on the nose than a lot of his other films. That is definitely true. You know, there's, uh, there, there's no, the sci-fi world gets crazy. Technology is going to kill us. None of that craziness. It's just Vietnam was going or, or shortly thereafter. I think it was going when he fil started filming and less so when he was done. But, um, you know, it's this. This is the uh, in in the words of uh, somebody else from Marine Corps media. Uh, th this is America's pit bull that we occasionally let off the leash to go break something for us. Mm -hmm. And hey, look, he does a good job. I mean, how you describe that just there—that's really gonna tie into this entire film is the idea that of, of basically of creating a monster and yeah, that monster can do a lot of things. You know, that might, monster might do exactly what you want it to do, I suppose, and kill the bad guy, kill the enemy, whatever it may be. It also might do some other stuff, but once you create the monster, the monster's there, I suppose. And that's, uh, for probably the past hundred years, that's been the pretense of the Marine Corps. Uh, and, and there is a, a thing that, that never gets covered in movies because it's not very interesting, but uh, coming home out of this place is always interesting uh, it, for everybody I've ever talked to about it, myself included. Um, you know, you, if you're a normal human being, you at some point talk about your job and uh, I promise you talking about being a Marine does not go the way that, that anybody wants it to go. Right. Like, yeah, man. So we did all this great stuff. And they're like, Oh, you just said you killed a lot of people. Like, what? Yeah. What do you think the Marine Corps does? Do you guys ever get so so kind of used to talking about it, sort of flippantly on your own, based on your own experiences, that when you maybe bring it up in the same mannerism and you speak about it the same way around a bunch of normies, to them, it's like it's absolutely horrifying. Then, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I've I've got a friend that uh, uh, he uh actually in that exact vein we we came home from afghanistan and and he went to like a big family reunion that was scheduled for like us getting home and uh you know his cousin or something is is doing college football and he's like yeah man here's the highlight reel so this friend of mine breaks out like the war highlight reel and everybody in the house is like oh my god right and on the other hand, what were we all doing for the past three weeks that, you know, before they, they let everybody go home on leave, we're all exchanging all the videos we've got all like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that, man. That was nuts. Right. And it it, it doesn't translate at all. Uh, and people <laughs> people don't get it. It's, just how it's it is. not the family reunion content that we that we expected at all. No, not in the slightest. 
<laughs> All right. Well, Don, it's time. Uh, why don't we dive right into the film? I, I kind of have some notes here. So, but feel free. This is a, it's an open forum. Feel free to butt in, uh, you know, shoot your mouth about anything I bring up along the way. Um, and we start off right off the scene with a, a pretty extended haircut scene where we see all of our, well, all of our sort of former individuals right from the bat, I think, sort of shed, shedding uh, a, a part of their individuality, you know, kind of trying to put them into this mold where they're, you know, they're a little less individual. They're going to be part of a union. Did, did you get your head? Is that, is that a thing that still happens? Oh, to, do all Marines get their head shaved? Absolutely. Um, they, they cut out a thing that is... Um, intermittently important to Marines. I don't, I don't know how else to say that. Um, most of the time you don't find Marines talking about it, but every Marine in the world, their journey in, in uh, becoming a Marine starts as uh, you get off a bus. There's a bunch of yellow footprints and it's stand on the footprints. Right. And then, uh, you know, there's a, there's a guy with a nice big giant hat who is, uh, all right, all of you, this is how you stand attention. Okay. Look at the sign. Right. Uh, and then from there is just, constant screaming uh which you know they're they're playing some music in the background while everybody's getting their hair cut but it's you know drop off all your uh all the stuff you've had in civilian life that you might have brought with you it goes in a little bag gets thrown away basically till you get out of boot camp and then you're you're running through hallways to go get your head shaved and all kinds of other stuff sounds kind of similar to arriving to prison my yeah. only in prison, I think you get to keep your hairstyle. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's the primary difference. Um, I've known some felons who were like, "Yeah, man, the people I get along best with in this world are Marines." Like, yeah, that's that's probably not a coincidence. <laughs> that all that all tracks. And yeah, feel free to, to chime in with any stuff like that in this movie that that you know you can add a little wrinkle of your own experience to for sure. Um, maybe and maybe here's going to be a good point because right away we are introduced to Gunnery Sergeant. Hartman, the uh, the incredible Arlie Ermey, who I, I believe is legit. He is, uh, I believe he was, dra dra I think he was hired for this role, not even as an actor. I don't believe he had acted before. I uh, could be wrong. Maybe he had an acting role, but he was he was cast because of his actual uh, experience. Did you have a Sergeant Hartman that that uh, that you sort of remember from your days? So um, the opening scene, and this is not going to make any sense to anybody who is a not a Marine and b not currently watching this movie. But I promise you, if you go back and you open up the boot camp scene, right, right as, uh, you know, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman's, you know, I am your senior drill instructor, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, right? While he is giving that speech, there are two more guys in the same uniform as him, uh, right behind him, flanking him in a triangle, right? And those guys in real boot camp do real things. Um, in fact, those guys are the guys that run boot camp in real life. Um, your your senior, you know, you, you see your senior drill instructor like twenty times in any real way. Yeah, okay, he walks through and you know he'll. He's more like the upper management and then sort of delegates to the other guys that we don't see here. Absolutely is. It would kind of I guess confuse the narrative a little bit. They need they wanted the one guy to focus on instead of you know a couple different guys. Well, so to the uh, you know uh, before this movie, Staff Sergeant Ermy, um, he is in fact a marine. He was in fact a drill instructor. Uh, well, I guess he, in the only way that you can be was a Marine, I guess he was a Marine. He's now passed, but uh, he he had gone down there to train a guy to to be a drill instructor. And basically what he said was, look, uh, he, he went back after like two days of trying to get this guy to act like a drill instructor. He said, this guy can't yell. He's not intense. Uh, he, he has none of the qualities of a United States Marine Corps drill instructor. And uh, Kubrick and, and the rest of the staff were like, yeah, but he's an actor. And so uh, Ermy grabbed, you know, formed up a platoon as you would a Marine platoon and, um, you know, just started giving them commands, drilling them as you would as a 
uh, if you were a drill instructor. And he just did this as he knew everybody was about to hit the set. And the entire uh, film crew walked down and was like, oh, we got to get rid of this actor guy. This is amazing, right? Um, and if you if you watch the behind the scenes on this movie, um, I don't think it's Kubrick, but somebody else says, uh, you know, it was amazing. You know, we didn't have to write lines for him. Basically, you just wind him up. You say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna start the scene, and it's an endless supply of curses and, and yelling at people, and he just goes. You know, it's uh, it's like a wind up toy. You just let it go, and it does its thing. Uh, and so, it is not unreasonable to assume that the vast majority, and by assume, I mean they talk about it a little bit, but a lot of the material that you get out of uh, Arlie Ermey as Gunnery Sergeant Hartman is improvised in the way that, I mean, you know, boot camp is a very sterile thing in its own way. Uh, there's, there's a lot of mayhem when you're the recruit, but there's a lot of very specific things that have to happen if you're the drill instructor. And so you get those things translated as best you can. Um, but for, the, the only complaint that I have ever heard by Marines about this is my drill instructors. When we watched this, the last, like, second to last night of boot camp, uh, they, they cracked out this exact movie. <laughs> and they, uh, we, we get about halfway through the boot camp scene, and, and one of my drill instructors says, uh, you know, the uh, J-Hat is crickets, which, for those who don't speak Marine, is those two guys that are flanking him that I was talking about in that little triangle. One of them is the J-Hat. That's the guy that teaches you uh, you know, drill. He teaches you um, basic how to be Marine things related to ceremony. And the other guy should be the heavy hat. And that guy is teaching you all the other things about how to be Marine. Uh, that guy is is uh, why you you see Marines 10, 20, 30 years out who are like, yeah, JJ did, uh, did Taibako. Gotcha. Like, uh, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, purpose of the interior guard, keyword popper, right? And make no mistake, if you are one of the various Marines out there who's like, Bro, I don't remember what that shit means. I, well, look, it's not important to everybody. And let's face it, if you stopped and thought about it for a minute, you probably would. But um, those two guys are the guys that are running your day-to-day -day life in boot camp. Uh, on the other hand, it is much easier if you're making a movie to have one character who is regularly the guy there, the regularly the people that you're interacting with, um, who's doing all the things that, three to five guys depended a little on platoon size and how many drill instructors I've got at the time. Better to have one guy because the audience relates to that guy better. So is it perfect? No. Is it forgivable? Yes. Especially when you got someone who's just crushing that role so perfectly as Arlie Army. Why, why do you want to divvy that up? Um, just let him do it. And, and in this opening scene, we kind of use, we get our introduction to Hartman through his meeting and yelling at all these, uh, these new recruits. And it's also the device that we use to meet, you know, all of our characters basically. So we meet Joker, he gets, and they all get their nicknames here. Did you guys get nicknames in the, in the same manner? Um, you got nicknames when they showed up. Um, I do not have some magical nickname, or at least if I do, I don't know it, which might not mean anything, but uh, my last name is Workman. And for those not familiar with how the military works, the military has a thing called working parties. And in working parties, you do whatever shit work needs to be done. And so if you walk into the military with the last name Workman, <laughs> you might not get a nickname because like, ah, work your party up. Where's Workman, right? You don't need why. Yeah, you showed <laughs> up already. Right. You're already, <laughs> already, you know, bow tied together. Uh, so yeah, we, we meet Joker um, and obviously the, he, he's pretty much, I guess, the, our protagonist of, of this film. But we also meet uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's character, Leonard, who quickly gets the nickname 
of Gomer Pyle. And just Vincent D'Onofrio, every, every time I watch this movie, I'm just blown away by how good he is in this. In, in on sort of both sides of the coin of his role that we'll talk about the sort of darker half of this role in a little bit. But in, in this version, he is just playing just an innocent retard pretty much that somehow, and of course this is during the draft when this, this film. So this isn't, I mean, when you were in there, it's pretty much all people that were, well, I say joined of their own volition. I mean, maybe a lot of them were coerced in, in other ways or, or strongly suggested in other ways. I'm sure you get a lot of people in there that are there avoiding, avoiding something else. Like you, I think isn't, isn't, isn't still a thing where some people can go into like the military or, the, or something like that instead of going to jail. Is that a thing? So, happens in movies. Uh, I have mixed answers on that. I have met okay. people that claim that that is true, uh, or at least did say 15 years ago, right? But um, as a premise, the all-volunteer force thing reigns supreme. Right. Uh, that said, one of those things that that uh, probably doesn't get get talked about in relation to Vincent D'Onofrio's character is, uh, you know, th- this is this is a pretty decent reflection of McNamara's morons, um, where unironically they just said what if we didn't have an intelligence requirement to join the military and then just drafted all the guys that they went uh you're too dumb to be here well wait a minute maybe they're not anymore uh and i i will say that whether or not it is the case that we still draft people whether or not it is the case that uh you know there's there's people who join in lieu of going to prison certainly there are uh, it does work in the sense, which is to say that I had a speeding ticket when I enlisted and, uh, or I got a speeding ticket while I was waiting to go. And so my recruiter went down to, to court with me and went, uh, he's going to boot camp in uh, like three weeks and judge went case dismissed. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe you know. one of those things, maybe on the books, there's not really a get out of jail, go to boot camp thing, but maybe there is sort of a more of a wink and a nod, like, come on, judge, this guy's, we'll, we'll just bring him to, he's going to the Marines to chill. Definitely. Uh, I mean, it, it worked for me. Uh, it was a $2,000 <laughs> ticket that I didn't pay. So, yeah. you know, I'll take it. And it, I got to imagine, maybe not to the extent uh, of Gomer Pyle here, but it, I got to imagine there's always that guy to some extent in, in each little group of recruits, the guy that's just falling behind, the guy that just fucks it up for everybody. Did you have someone like, I don't, you don't got a his name. Last, but just, his last name is Winsett. I do not at all <laughs> in any way hold back from naming this individual. <laughs> yes, uh, naming is optional, so you're certainly free to. He was, he was unironically Gomer Pyle. Um, you know, there's a, there, there's a, a couple of, of times in this movie where Arlie Ermey is standing in front of Vincent D'Onofrio and he's, uh, you know, effectively just yelling at him, scream, right? You know, uh, you know, one of, one of the things about Marine Corps boot camps is you scream everything, right? You know, good morning. You, you better be screaming good morning loud enough to blow somebody else's eardrums out, all kinds of stuff like that, right? And so, uh, you know, there, there's, there's something, I forget exactly what he says, but there... I walked into the squad bay at some point coming back from somewhere and there were three drill instructors standing around this kid, all of them knife hands out, bent, you know, cocked forward. And that way, if you've seen that video that goes around, there's, you know, the one guy standing in front of some foot lockers and all these drill instructors rush in and start screaming at him just like that. And all of them are yelling at the top of their lungs, scream. And this kid is just going, aye, aye, sir. Aye, aye, sir. Aye, aye, sir. And make no mistake, by the way, if this, if you are about to go to boot camp and you see something like that happen, you're about to have a long night. It's coming, right? You for everybody. Because this guy sucks. A long night for everybody, yeah. Uh-huh. 
and it's I think from the from the beginning here, there's kind of like a dichotomy in a weird way because I I actually find both Hartman and um and Go- Gomer Pyle Leonard to be sort of lovable in their in their own different in their own completely different ways. Uh, you know, Arlie Ermey is just, he's such an asshole, but he's so good at it and so hilarious at it and never, never cracks. He never really laughs at his own jokes that are just, uh, it's, it's incredible that these actors, although we can talk about Vincent D'Onofrio. I'm not, I still wonder to this day, I mean, he plays such, so well when in that scene where he's trying not to crack up and the character is supposed to be trying not to crack up. But I also wonder if Vincent D'Onofrio is also trying not to crack up in that, in, in, in real life, which maybe made, made his acting there uh, even, even all the better. But this is the big interaction is, is between uh, Go pile and uh and sergeant hartman uh culminating in the fact that he just can't wipe the smile off his face because he's kind of retarded or what have you so no matter what he's what um what hartman is yelling at him or he just can't stop he can't wipe the smile off his face he said i i can't so that he chokes him this is when we also see sort of i think the beginnings of of what will later become this character's transformation though his first introduction to the the physical violence when he gets hartman tells him to choke himself but it's hartman choking him with his hand to the point that you know he he eventually just makes him scream and eventually lets him go and he does he does wipe that shit and grin off his face i'll say it is effective so um for the sake of drill instructors everywhere let's say that that doesn't actually happen in boot camp i think that's fair i think that's a fair way to go and there the the Marine Corps approved method of dealing with this kind of problem child is uh, called uh, getting it. Um, it's uh, oh, what are all the the real human words for it? Uh, Push ups, um, jumpy jacks. What does it stand for? Uh, individual training, if I recall correctly. Oh, okay, that sounds. Um, like, I guess a nice a nice way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna get some individualized training here. That's right. Come on over. It'll be nice. uh, uh, you know, the mountain climbers. I have no idea what anybody else calls those, but mountain climbers. Yeah, I did them in wrestling. Not fun. exactly right. They were, they were always uh, a punishment exercise. They were never just for like we're going to do this. It's right. always like this is because well, you fucked up. Yeah, because you know, about nine seconds into doing them, you feel like you got hit and you know with with a bat right across your abs. <laughs> you know, uh, and and that is that is the Marine Corps approved method. And uh, there there is. Uh, 30 or 40 seconds into this. I, I promise you, you'll regret whatever you're doing. It uh, Probably wish you were being choked 30 seconds into yeah. mountain climbers. Oh, man. I, I'd have traded it in any day. Um, but, you know, they, and and the drill instructors have their own, own particular methods of doing it. For example, my senior drill instructor, well, I only ever saw him do it once, liked to sing, or rather have you sing. Uh, which is to say that in in all Marine speak, it goes something like this: side straddle hops and mountain climbers, Marine Corps push ups, run in place, keep the cadence, ready to begin, right? Um, and I imagine and, you're uh, doing what the lyrics are saying. Oh yeah, oh, at God. the same cadence you're singing it, right? Oh, so God. yeah, um, and uh, look, it's effective, um, I, and and so that is that is definitively what all drill instructors do, regardless of the next news article that comes out that says that that's not what all drill instructors do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how you know. So does it ever, do they ever do go to the extreme? I mean, because as we'll go through here, I mean, the, the first few scenes here just basically just are showing how Pyle is is the fuck up of this group. Uh, he can't do anything. He can't run. Uh, I, I particularly love the obstacle scene where he's trying to climb the obstacle and uh, Hartman is just screaming at him and just, just tells him to get the hell off his obstacle 
skeptical. And it's just, I mean, but you're you're building so much sympathy for Pyle at the same time because it's not like he's just this like lazy dude. He just he is clearly just a retard and like bear and just is fucking scared and just doesn't even clearly doesn't belong anywhere near here. But hey, it's the draft, and I guess you know we we don't check this stuff. We just toss people in there nowadays, or at least back then. Uh, and eventually, though, um. Pyle is, is he becomes such a lovable loser at the same time as that we're we're sort of seeing pot or seeing Hartman give him shit. It's like I I kind of almost feel like they're they're like two sides of the same coin. Like 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 he is as innocent as as Hartman as is in command. They're almost two sides of each other. But uh eventually he just sort of gets fed up with things and um he pretty, he just assigns Joker to pretty much be the one to uh, to look over uh, to, and be responsible for uh, the progress, I guess you could say, of Gomer Pyle. And so, do they ever go to this extreme where I think when he really fucks up worse, is it, when he goes when he goes beyond just he's bad at all this shit, is the scene where um, Hartman sees is doing his inspection and he sees the locker and he sees that his Foot Locker is unlocked. And he fucking loses his shit, rips the lock. I mean, he just thinks he's gonna yell at him for not having his locker cleaned. And he says, "This is, you know, this is why the shit gets stolen because idiots like you throws all the shit out of his locker." And then he sees the jelly donut and pulls out the jelly donut, grills him about why he's got it. I, I mean, it's kind of funny because Pyle still stays pretty straight faced the whole time. He's just like, "Because I was hungry, sir." Uh, and then the way they punish him, and this is when I think things really turn in a, in a direction that's going to lead to bad things for Gomer Pyle here is he, they punish, he punishes everybody else. He makes everybody else do pushups while Gomer Pyle eats the donut. And he says, from now on, he says, it's, it's because of you guys that he's failing. You guys aren't giving him the support and the guidance that he needs to be for, to get the proper motivation. He says, you're not getting him the proper motivation, which I feel like is, is some kind of code there a little bit. Cause we'll, we'll kind of see what the proper motivation turns into a little bit. But have you ever seen that kind of thing where obviously they do sort of punish the group for fucking up, but do they ever go as far as we're going to punish the group and this guy's going to actually sit and <laughs> do something else. He's going to eat, eat a jelly donut. And and sort of drive that wedge even further against that one person. Yeah. Uh, hands down. That absolutely happens. Um, it's the only times I ever saw it happen, it was much more warranted, I guess you could say. Uh, you know, somebody had a doctor's appointment and then had to go to that doctor's appointment and miss something and came back. And later he screwed up on what he missed. It wasn't his fault. That was all of your fault. Every single one of you should have taught him what it was that he missed because you can't just leave people hanging like that. Uh, and it's, um, that is the generous way to phrase it. I won't get you, but that is, that is about how that lesson goes. Uh, equally, if, you know, somebody, somebody is, is, you know, failing PT tests or whatever, uh, it's less that they're not doing anything. Um, you know, I, I definitely ran circles around pull-up bars for a while. <laughs> Because somebody couldn't do pull-ups uh, while he just sat on a pull-up bar, not doing a lot. Um, and and all that, you know, sort of stuff definitely happens. Uh, in in the world of how does the rest of that go, I personally left a footlocker unlocked all of one time. And it went exactly, well, it went slightly more violently than you see in that movie. Uh, drill instructor just walked over, picked up the footlocker, just one-handed through that bitch. Uh, and it looked, you know, it's the same squad bays that you see in that movie. So it went all over the place. Uh, notoriously, every platoon, as far as I can tell, uh, gets 
it has various names, but you know, the, the whirlwind tornado, all these sorts of things where they dump everybody's footlocker in a big giant pile right in the middle of the room. And you go through and you just pull out everything that is yours. Right. Uh, and you put it back in a footlocker while somebody's standing there screaming at all of you, right. Throwing racks and all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, these things definitely happen in the world of, uh, it's easy to, easy to get caught up in group punishment. I had three or four guys steal cereal. Very related to the donut thing, right? Uh, it's not a thing that you're generally eating and or you're always hungry in boot camp anyway. So as much as you can shove into your face is is uh, how much you're eating. And so they, they thought they'd pocket some cereal and be on their way. And I happened to be Firewatch that morning, which is the guy that stands there in front of those footlockers, right? And watches overnight and whatever. They, they get back from uh, getting chow slash eating and... Uh, I, I had fucked up some incredibly minor thing. Like I, I misnotated the uh, uh, the duty log for the evening. And so drill instructor standing there checking it. And he's, oh, you, you fucked this up. Get the fuck over there. And, you know, and there's a thing called the quarterdeck. It's just the front. Uh, it's where you go to get fucked up. Uh, and so I'm over there and I'm you know, doing some push-ups. They bring, they bring these guys in. Everybody's yelling and screaming. They're down there next to me doing push-ups all of a sudden. And we're just going. We're like for an hour, we're just going, right? Uh, and, and some one of the drill instructors walks by and goes, Oh, you're gonna fucking steal cereal in the fucking morning, huh? No, sir. What the fuck do you mean, no, sir? Uh, sir, I was I was the duty and misnotated the the book. You just <laughs> got like lumped in with these other guys <laughs> yep. that, that just stayed there for an hour. They're like, oh, we don't usually do that punishment <laughs> for that. Shit. Right. Oh well. <laughs> right. Well, you we got was... some exercise today, son. All right. Well. Did you eat this morning? No. Go do that right now. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, and yeah, that, that probably sounds terrible, but it is as funny to me as, you know, it's, it's not a fake laugh. I, I think it's hilarious, especially in retrospect. Did it suck balls at the time? Yes, it did. <laughs> but, I mean, to yeah. me, this, this is the entire experience to me. I mean, I, I imagine it's one of those things that it's the best time that you never want to have again. Like the memories are going through it is horrible, but some of the memories in retrospect, like, oh, that's pretty fucking funny, but you don't want to do it again. So you, you find out the guys who want to do it again real quick because they become drill instructors. Uh, uh, okay. And, and uh, drill instructor school, I know, because I, I had a few people tell me that I would have made a great drill instructor and I was seriously <laughs> considering doing it. Uh, and you know, so what's what's drill instructor school like? Well, it's boot camp. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, they teach you how to teach instead of how to learn, but it's boot camp. So same bad. format, just they're leveling you up to be the the one that can do that with everybody else. So you got to be even more hard. You got to be the most hardcore of the hardcore, I would imagine. Exactly. That's that's the idea, right? Um, you know, it's that same one one of those things that gets gets pretty lost if you don't already know is that uh you know no matter how many times you go through that movie hartman's uniform is always perfect mm-hmm. um you know and, and it's not kind of perfect it's always picturesque it, it doesn't matter if he's yelling at somebody it doesn't matter if he's running it doesn't matter what he's doing he looks like you could step him to the side and snap a picture and put it on a recruiting poster and that is a huge part of drill instructor's jobs uh mm-hmm. that i don't think if they had used whomever the actor was ever would have been accomplished yeah, they they set the example that everyone else is supposed to sort of reach towards. Right. And um, so you, you can't you can't look like shit. 
Uh, again, and that's, I mean, there's the one scene where, where Joker's just looking at Pyle and, and trying to get him dressed up. He's like, hey, you really look like shit today. And I did skip one thing that I think is pretty important that we should go back to is the one scene where Hartman uh, is grilling Joker about whether he believes in the Virgin Mary. And Joker, who I, I guess is probably an atheist, it seems in this movie or something, he, or he's not Christian anyway, he says, no, he doesn't believe in the Virgin Mary. He says, no, sir. And Hartman just winds up and slaps the shit out of him and asks him again, and, I, and you think that he's going to be like, all right, well, I got slapped for saying no. So obviously I say yes, but Joker stands his ground and again says, no, I don't believe in the Virgin Mary. And Hartman kind of grills him on this. And he says, well, I, I kind of think at this point you're going to set, you're going to hit me no matter what I do. So I may as well, I think it'll be worse if I don't just stand up for myself. And it kind of works depending on your perspective. It works because he actually immediately, he calls over Private Snowball, the black guy, uh, and, uh, you know, de demotes him and makes Joker the the head of the platoon or the head of the, the what do you call the recruits? They're not squad. platoon yet, right? The squad, yes. Um, and not only that, but he gets the extra special prize of being personally responsible for teaching uh, Pyle every little thing. So then we kind of go into, you know, the first montage was like Pyle sucks. And then the, sex, the next kind of set of scenes is uh, Joker sort of training up pile and he does actually start to get a little bit not he doesn't really get much better but he gets a little bit better uh and he's kind of helping him over the obstacle he almost kind of gets him there you can see some improvement but at the end of the day he's still a total retard i mean he, he's getting a little better because of joker but uh it's just, it's just not going great and then this all leads to that the jelly donut incident that we discussed before and that that next scene is when um, Pyle, Pyle is telling Joker, like, dude, everybody hates me now. Like, this is really bad. And he's like, nah, everyone, he's, he's like, even you. And you can see Joker pauses. He's like, because inside he's like, yeah, even me, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, but but it's, it's like, nah, it's not like that. But, um, and then we see a lot, then after that scene is when we start to get a lot more of the, that the scenes of everybody, the group punishment, everybody else doing pushups while, while Pyle sits there sucking his thumb. And it, it's very obvious that he can do do nothing and and the entire group is just getting worse and worse and worse so eventually we get to the 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 proper motivation i guess i guess you might say uh, i have to think that this is obviously this is not nothing that would be officially sanctioned but i imagine unofficially it's very sanctioned and i imagine this is the sort of thing that hartman's referring to when he says that he needs the proper motivation this is the infamous soap scene i remember be, being actually kind of horrified by this when i was a teenager before i could see, see the value in it i guess you might say um and uh you know but they all just kind of they come up on, on him in the middle of the night they wind up on their soap in, uh, in towels and just beat the living shit uh out of pile and joker in this scene at first they, they have him hit, they have joker hit him and at first he he hesitates a little bit because he actually has grown to not like him, but feel sorry for him. Probably if anything, he hits him once, but then you can, it's like it all, everything has been holding, he's been Open holding it back gates, in yeah. and he just goes nuts. He just lay, lays into him four or five times and everyone just goes back to bed. And this is another thing too. I, I got to imagine, well, no, they, they did keep it pretty quiet um, until afterwards when he lets out this, this childlike whale. And I, I think this is what D'Onofrio, the way he handled this, I, the way he did this yell, it was like, it was done not like an adult would yell. It was done like a child would yell. Like he says, ow, ow, you know, like it's, it's yeah. they really, he really does a lot of great acting here too. And there's enough sympathy for this character already because he's just a total retard. But the I think that this way that he cried out was just like, oh my God. I mean, they're, you, you really just feel like they're beating up a kid here. So, um, right, wrong, or otherwise, uh, if you're here, if you're in this place doing this thing, which is to say Marine Corps boot camp. Someone's life is going to depend on you mm -hmm. and your life is going to depend on theirs. 
And so your options very quickly get limited. Uh, and again, for the sake of, of everyone I know who's still enlisted, uh, I never saw a blanket party. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so that's the term. That's a, there's a term for this. Oh, there is a term for this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they are they are definitively not officially sanctioned. Uh, I would I would imagine so. These days, the Marine Corps thinks they're hazing and that, you know, hazing is the worst thing in the world. So uh, definitely never happened, obviously. Um, and it's, it's just a, a thing lost to time. We'll, we'll call it that. Uh, no, no less. Um, people who are not Marines probably get a lot of sympathy for, for uh, Gomer throughout this movie. And I, I personally don't. I, I don't want to speak for every Marine that's ever been. But this is why you're the one I brought on to, to talk about this. Well, the, no this sympathy is, for Gomer Pyle. I, I love not, it. Not, not <laughs> even a little. Like, you know, there, there, there's some stuff, you know. That but isn't there a part of you that just thinks he's a, total, he's a retard? Like, he, he shouldn't even be there in the first place? Yes. Uh, and, and maybe that is the right answer. Like, there, in the context, I get what you're saying. In the context, you really do have maybe no other choice because you're going to die. This guy's going to yeah. get people killed. So exactly. in, in that context... Oh well, you know you're here, so. Well, and that—that's the deal, right? Is mm -hmm. and in the infinite wisdom of this here United States Marine Corps, um, they should have gotten rid of him. That is—that is the correct answer. There were uh, there's a thing called administrative separation. It's how they deal with that. Uh, generally, it's called failure to adapt. Uh, is is the little subline that they put under that, uh, and and it basically means you're Gomer Pyle, or in some way non fixably close enough to Gomer Pyle. Is it and, just because you're, it's usually people that are just that, not necessarily retarded, but they're just that bad at this that like, yeah, at some point you can have hope the group sort of gets them motivated in the right way. But at some point they just, they're not going to ever get anywhere. So they just got to get them out of there. So for, for those guys in particular, yes, though, um, to, to not besmirch everybody who has gotten an administrative separation, there are other reasons. Um, there, there was a guy when I was in boot camp, he couldn't do this, right? That, that's it. Only problem, uh, and if you, you mean he couldn't make this physical motion, yeah, uh, he, we're turning he, our yeah. hands around for those uh, listening to the audio. Version. Yeah, it, it's you know, very just, simple motion. Just just rotate, you know, hold your elbow still, rotate the palm of your hand, and you, whomever you are listening to this, uh, probably are like everybody can do that. And it it turns out there's some minor bone defect you can have that will mean that no, no, you can't do that. Um, and and that guy. Uh, that I watched this happen to spent uh, something like nine out of 13 weeks in Marine Corps boot camp, got to the range. Um, and there's <laughs> you get that far. Well, there's I mean, not, that's impressive. Not a lot of specific stuff that requires that kind of manual motion of your arm, right? Even push ups, though, you kind of, I mean, maybe he, could he manage push ups? I was doing them on the outsides of his hands, as far as wow. I could tell, which, by wow. the way, hard wow. as nails. Holy fuck. Right? Yeah, he sounds <laughs> tough as fuck to me. I mean, <laughs> Shit. But the thing is, if you can't rotate like that, there's some rifle manipulation that you can't do. And it's just physically impossible. And so they, they took him down, they x-rayed his arms, and they went, time for you to go home. Uh, nine weeks into boot camp, on the range. Uh, and he'd failed nothing. Uh, he was good at, wow. maybe not everything, but you know, he was good <laughs> enough at everything that uh, you know, he, was, he was hitting... The, everybody's favorite place, the, the slightly upper end of the middle of the pack, which is where you get absolutely left alone by everybody because you're doing better than average uh, and you're good enough, right? And so, you know, that, that guy got an administrative separation. 
but entirely for something outside of his control. There was never he, you know, if you dedicated more time, if you did this, that, or the other. Um, and this is one of those things that doesn't get shown particularly well in um, Full Metal Jacket either, is that you've got, hypothetically, uh, an hour, give or take, every day in boot camp where it's it's your time, sort of. You can, you know, this is where letters get written home. This is, you know, whatever it is you do. And a lot of the expectation of Marine Corps boot camp is that if you suck at something, that hour is dedicated to that something. So if you're pile, right, you should be tracking down somebody who's good at something, whatever it is that you suck at, being like, hey, uh, so I've got this hour and I need to not suck at this. And one of those things that just gets skipped over entirely, but is implied very heavily to all Marines everywhere, is that this guy is not doing that, right? Uh, because even people who suck at things will get stood up for if they're putting out, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, don't get me wrong. If you're the guy that sucks at everything, you're dragging everybody down at everything. Probably not. But if it's one or two things and you're, you're otherwise doing okay, then like, hey, why, why the hell do you suck at this? Uh, how much of your free time you know, are you putting into this? And the guy that you're putting in your time with is going to be like, uh, sir, uh, you know, recruit fuckface over here has put in the last you know, two weeks of his personal time with me to try and get better at this thing. Uh, and maybe that won't get you out of whatever is coming to you, but I promise you it'll be less. Right. Uh, and at least once, most likely, uh, will be, well, as long as you're putting it out on your own, the good. Right. right. So yeah. if you're just falling on your face and you're getting tired and you're trying, like you're not necessarily going to get that. Maybe, maybe you'll get a blanket, something, but maybe not the full party. Whereas uh, probably Pyle, which maybe that just didn't really help the narrative. Cause I think part of this is to build that initial sympathy for Pyle. So showing him work the extra hour doesn't really help. So maybe nope. they just leave that, leave that whole thing out of there. And cause all you see, really what leads to this whole thing is, is finding the jelly donut. Cause that, that's like a case of something like, all right, we can have sympathy for the fact that you're a retard, the fact that you can't do push-ups or pull-ups or anything, but you probably lose sympathy when you like you, even if you just forgot to unlock the locker, but the jelly donut was like the start of like, all right, this guy's actually that, doesn't give a fuck about us. Yeah. Well, so there, there's uh, th that is a hard line for a lot of reasons, right? Um, sucking it. Like, first of all, if, if you are five minutes from enlisting, let me promise you that for the next 13 weeks, you suck at everything. You suck at your name. You suck at walking. Uh, and, and if you think I'm kidding, you know, feel free to drop me a line right after you get out of freaking boot camp and go, I can't believe that a hundred motherfuckers sucked at walking. I can't believe that's true. Uh, but it will be all right. You know, um, and so those things are all kind of expected, but you're also kind of expected to go from sucking at this to not sucking at this. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah, everybody, you know, you pick up different things at different times and not everybody learns the same speed. All well and good. Generally pretty well accounted for by Marine Corps boot camp. Uh, once you do something that is obviously maliciously against whatever you're supposed to be doing, the whole world will turn it on you. And uh, yeah, that, that definitely gets turned on here again, big time with Gomer Pyle. We takes that beating and this is where it's almost like a symbolic, get a little bit symbolic here. It is almost like a symbolic death of, of the innocent version of his character, the innocent. It's almost the death of Go Gomer Pyle and uh, the birth of like killer Leonard, because suddenly uh, it went, the next sort of series of scenes we see uh, is that 
you know, we see that Pyle is actually starting to get good and he's starting to get really good, especially with the rifle. And um, to the point that Hartman is even commending him. He says, holy crap, we might've found something you're actually good at. And there is, yeah. there is one line here and he's just locked in too. And you, there's a difference in his eyes too, that, that they make very clear. Um, really from the first time we see him shooting the rifle after that beating his eyes, he has this, um, I think it's referred to as the Kubrick stare. A lot of his characters get this kind of look in their eyes. Uh, Jack Nicholson does it in The Shining. I think Tom Cruise does some Kirk Cruise version of it in, in Eyes Wide Shut. But there, there's like this, this sort of a this this Kubrick stare you could say that signifies like a change in the character, a change in the mindset, a change in the inner spirit. And there, that certainly has happened inside of Gomer Pyle after the beating. It was kind of like the end of his innocence. Uh, you know, it's it's no longer I'm just this goofy guy and these are my buddies. Uh, it's like oh no, these are these are who Hartman is. I think in his mind, because Hartman's been saying like you're trained to kill and only to kill, and you, you're going to kill everything and i think in his mind he's starting to connect the idea of becoming a killer now he's connecting it now with, well these are actually these are my enemies too because so i'm training i don't think he's thinking i don't think he's giving a thought to vietnam at this point i don't know if he's actually plotting to kill anyone at this point but he's definitely not thinking like i'm becoming i don't think he's thinking i'm becoming a soldier he's but he has thinking he is thinking i'm now going to become a killer uh Reasonably so. And, uh, you know, there's a speech later in the movie or actually real close to this time in the movie that sort of deals with that. You know, it's it's them running through the woods and Joker's doing a voiceover and that I mean, the voiceover is not wrong. That is the you know, when when you get out of Marine Corps boot camp uh, there, there is a big speech they give all the families and the beginning of that or, you know, the, the end of that speech speech is something like they are physically fit, basically trained Marines. Right. And to an earlier point, what do you what do you think the Marine Corps does? It it kills people for the United States. That's its job, right? Uh, and you know you can you can church that statement up as much as you want, but in the end, if you know when when people say you know there's a problem over there, send the Marines. They don't mean hey, there's a bunch of guys with teddy bears we could send over there. They say there's a bunch of guys with rifles and cannons and tanks. Uh, and if we send them over there, whatever that problem is, ain't going to be a problem anymore because they're going to kill it. And so, yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, rightly so. He should be, um, you know, the, that, that divorced from uh, civilian morality and, and general behavior by that time. Uh, to, the, to the Kubrick stare thing, though, uh, it looks a lot like, at least to... Uh, those of us who are, are war nerds this way, the it's it's a homage, I guess, to the thousand yard stare popular. I was going to bring that up because they actually mentioned that later in the movie in sort of the second half. Uh, one of the characters just talks about the thousand, thousand yard stare. He says at some point, any soldier no matter, is going to come to that point where they get that thousand yard stare. Maybe you can d dig into what that is, actually. So um, it's. It's probably actually what people think when they think shell shocked, right? Regardless of whether or not that that is the history of the term PTSD or whatever, um, the the idea is you you've seen something traumatic enough that you're sort of just shutting off uh, whether or not you're looking at reality. It's it's the kind of vacant stare. Uh, but right along with that, pretty notoriously, guys who are out there killing people kind of have a a mean face to them, you know, to uh, to the. Uh, Arlie Ermey and the various things he says in introductions, you know, show me your war face, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, Joker yells at him, uh, screams a little, and he, yeah, that, you don't scare me, work on it, right? And so uh, you know, the entire time, I was an active duty Marine, I'm 100% certain 
uh, wife still tells me I have it, is resting serial killer face, right? <laughs> Which, you know, if if I'm not paying attention, right, there, there's, there's no smile, there's it's just, right? And you, you look like a dick, right? But you're supposed to look like a dick. The, the, yeah, you're not supposed to look like a cuddly teddy bear that we... <laughs> right? Presumably, you're about to go meet some people trying to so kill they you. They did a good maybe, job maybe with you. Like, yeah. You know? And so... Um, and those those sorts of things are prolific uh, around the end of boot camp. It's not, uh, you know, every, everybody else is not demonstrating it particularly well, and and it's less vacant. It's much more purposeful and intense. But it's the um, the the thousand yards there as a premise is that you know something horrible has happened, and you're you're kind of just vacant for a moment. But I'll be back with you in a second here. All of reality. I, I mean, I think it's safe to say that Gomer Pyle has the the resting serial killer face pretty much the rest of the movie after after that incident to, to some extent and yeah to the point even at graduation or no we didn't get to graduation yet well there's a, there's a scene where uh arlie ermy uh hartman he you know he's he's drilling him on everything and all the poses asks, asks him how many maneuvers there were in this thing and then he says god damn pile you are born again hard and i thought that was a pretty key line a pretty interesting line because it does it does speak to the fact that this really was this version of pile that the, the post blanket party pile, this is, this is not the version that we saw in the first half of the movie. You could argue it's, it's not even the same person. It's what, what Carl Jung would call the shadow version. I think the shadow self, uh, the dark side of us all. I think in this case, maybe before this pile was, pure innocence, pure, you know, there was no shadow in there that creeped in at all. Uh, whereas instead of just letting a little sh shadow leak in after the blanket party, I think it was the, it just completely flipped in verse. His, he was fully encompassed by his shadow. He was born again hard as, uh, as Hartman puts it. So to your, your uh, earlier discussions of symbolism in this movie, you know, as Joker lets flow, right? As he takes that second and third swing, Gomer Pyle goes from just a kid to Gomer Pyle at the, you know, the end of boot camp, right? Uh, he goes from um, that, that soft gentle kid to Carl Jung's shadow. Right. Um, and as, as a premise, um, this sort of happens to everybody who becomes a Marine. Uh, it is ideally much more controllable than you get out of, uh, out of Gomer there. But, um, you know, this is, uh, this is so true that, you know, the, you asked, uh, you know, there are various memes that float around about this. You know, there's only two branches of the military, uh, you know, the, the air force is a corporation, the Navy's a, I don't know, gay club or something, uh, at, or no, the, the air, the air force is a corporation. There is the Navy, which is a branch of the military. There is the army, which is a branch of the military and the Marine Corps is a cult. And that's, not a coincidence. Um, you know, I, I asked the sergeant major of mine once uh, on air even what he thought of that. And he went, yep, and good, right? And, and by the way, that's, that's basically every Marine's view. Is, yep, we're a cult, fine, deal with it. Uh, yeah, yeah, we eat crayons, whatever it is that you want to say about things. But, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you, you can, uh, uh, once you're here, your family at me, all you want, uh, crappy little Italian restaurant, but... <laughs> Uh, the Marine Corps is very good at making Marines, so much so that uh, some of them, their you know, popular uh, high-speed uh, special operator guys have, have made plenty of commentary of like, you know, I did this thing and it was super badass, but sometimes 
I kind of wish I had been a Marine because I don't know what those guys do, but God, they do it well. Right. And, and on and on. And it's, it takes uh, separating you from the life you grew up in and not a little bit, right? You, you don't get all of the mannerisms of a Marine because you went to a two week class. That's not how this works. And so, yes, uh, that is the goal. Yes. Um, you know, you, you know, um, your weapon, the history of the Marine Corps, your, uh, your general orders, on and on and on. You know all of these things because uh, they, they are a lot of what incorporates you into that cult that is the Marine Corps. A lot of what uh, enters you into um, you know, a, a pretty long-standing lineage and tradition of being a United States Marine. And so... As, as much as you might feel sympathy in that moment, truth be told, for for most of the Marines I know, is like, well, you know, at least he made it, right? Yeah, I mean, you can say that, the, in a way, the result, like you kind of said there, the, the result of Pyle is almost the right result. It was just, a, he's got our target a little bit off. Maybe we could flip, save that flip of the switch until you're actually against the enemy. But they kind of got it right. It's just that this is a, such a unique case that there was only extreme, there was only the full extreme to be had. There was only purely innocent pile. And I guess I'm just going to kill my drill sergeant pile. But even then, it's not <laughs> It's not like he became this um, random murderer. He didn't kill Joker. He didn't kill anybody else. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll skip to that. We'll get to that scene here. We didn't really even really discuss it. But you know, Joker is on non-night patrol <clears throat> and he hears some, some kind of like rattling in the bathroom and he goes in and he sees pile just kind of cleaning his gun loading his gun and he just says like hey what are you doing like we're gonna get in trouble hartman's gonna kill us if he sees us up like he kind of he, he knows something's amiss and he's, he there was a scene too where he had mentioned it when i think he was cleaning the bathrooms with cowboy he had mentioned like it seemed like he was a little worried because he mentioned you know yeah um, that pile spending a lot of time with his gun and like you know even more so than i guess a normal marine mike enough for him to be a little bit concerned about it and, and he sees him with the gun he tries to talk him down and then pile goes into this thing where he says everything about the gun and the the 7.62 millimeter and all that and of course we get our movie title full metal jacket and <laughs> because of, because pile starts screaming the thing now he starts screaming you know this is my rifle this is my gun that wakes up hartman who comes in there and and then <clears throat> this scene is where you know where joker says like i'm you know we, first pile is just pissed that like why are you being the shit out of him like what the hell is he doing here and he's like i have to uh, it's my duty to inform you that he has a loaded gun even at this point, like Hartman never has one moment of getting scared or worried. Like he just goes right into screaming at pile again. He's like, you know, just yelling him to give, put the damn gun down. And the, not, I don't think he for one second ever crossed Hartman's mind that Hart, even when he's has is having the rifle pointed straight at his chest, it never once crossed his mind that this pile who he has seen, he even said he's born again, hard. He's got everything down. He knows everything. He's a killer. And now he's pointing the gun at him. He still had that, Whatever in his mind, I think he still saw Gomer Pyle because he still never seemed to even flinch. He never even flinched. He just got shot, and, and that was it. And then Pyle, I, th I thought it was interesting. This could have gone a couple of ways. I mean, you could have had Pyle go on a killing spree because in many ways you could see the the anger building up against everybody after the blanket party. But it seems like he really only directed it against the drill sergeant. To him, that was you know that was the source of everything, and then and then took his own life. So, what did you think about that scene? Uh, whether now on this viewing or maybe the first time you saw it, because I think that this scene hit us all a lot differently the first time we see it. So, uh, it, you know, it's it's mind blowingly wild the first time you see it. Um, 
and and you it illustrate well that uh, it it is different on the other side of boot camp. Um, so uh, Hartman is definitively. I, I left one thing out. I left an important thing no, out. He says one. Sure, sure. He says one thing before he shoots himself. He says, "I am in a world of shit." Oh no, he said. No, yeah. uh, and it's not right before he kills himself. He says. He says we're going to be in a world of shit. If uh, if Hartman finds out, and he says, in this, you know, I'm, I'm already in a world with of that, shit. yeah, with that Kubrick stare. So I think that's a key line that'll come back later. So um, Hartman is afraid. Um, there is a uh, sort of methodology that goes to being a Marine that they spend all of their time trying to instill in you when you're in boot camp. Right? This is how you get the, you know, we're the guys who run towards the sound of the bullets. Right? Mm. Is um, the Marine Corps' method of dealing with violence of any variety is that if I am bigger, stronger, faster, and more violent than you, I win, right? And that basically is the sum total of Marine Corps guidance on how to, um, as a method, execute any uh, any tactic, right? So if you're you're laying siege to a building, I'm bigger, stronger, faster, and more violent than you. Uh, you know, this is where you get terms like violence of action. Um, any number of things along those lines. And what Hartman does for the first time in that movie is not immediately get in his face, right? So uh, mm-hmm. Pyle, you know, they, they're, they're standing out there on the, the parade deck. Today's episode is sponsored by Fox and Sons Coffee. And let me just tell you, Stephen of Fox and Sons, he is not just an advertiser. He has been a supporter of this show from day one. And frankly, since before day one, because he came over with me from the old Lions and Liberty days. So true fan of the show. He started this company, Fox and Sons, out of his love for coffee and really out of wanting to further bond with his sons and spend time with him, just like he shared time with his father drinking coffee. Uh, He also gets to teach his sons about entrepreneurship entrepreneurship and business through this endeavor. So I'm so happy to have Stephen and really his whole family, the Fox and the Sons, the whole gang as a supporters and sponsors of this show. Not only that, his beans are so high quality, fresh. Look, I just got two new bags right here. I got the Mexican and my favorite, the Den Blend Dark. The beans are super high quality, fresh and sourced from small organic farms, fair trade. None of this GMO garbage. They're all small batch roasted. This is high quality stuff. Subscriptions are by far the best way to get your coffee. I have a couple subscriptions going, uh, but that is the way to go. You never run out that way. I never run out. I always have my supply of Fox and Sons. So I want you to head over to foxandsons.com. Put in your order today. They ship fast. They ship now through the end of February. Also, by the way, you're going to get free shipping on any order over $37.99. By the way, while you're there, use discount code MCS to get 18% off any order over $25. Stephen Fox is a great man, a great friend, great supporter of the show. I encourage you to check out his coffee over at foxandsons.com. Which is what all that big giant piece of concrete is called, or not concrete, but, you know, blacktop road, right? Uh, and and he, you know, left shoulder arms and, and Pyle throws the weapon on his right shoulder and then quickly fixes it. And the first thing Hartman does is run up and get this close, two inches um, from Pyle's face and start screaming, you know, what do you, do you not know your right from your left? What are you retarded? And right, you know, and on and on and on, uh, smacks him in the face a couple of times. And with that kind of engagement in mind, look back at Hartman as he walks into that bathroom. 
right? Because he's, you know, now you listen to me, pile. That is not, mm. I'm in your face. That is not, I'm beating the hell out of you. Yeah, that's that like, is not, right? It, that's not even. I'm glad I have you speed. here to analyze this because I kind of <laughs> glossed over it. Like, oh, he's not afraid. He's just he's just yelling and yelling. But when you break it down that way, yeah, it's to, to maybe someone that hasn't, you know, that the, the passerby, he doesn't seem like he's acting afraid. But if you compare it to how he has acted towards everybody and towards Pyle as the drill instructor, he's acting completely different now. That is a really a really good good way to look at things that I hadn't really processed the first yeah. time. And he, he, you know, it's um, he he slow rolls him. Uh, realistically, right? Because, but at the same time, if if you watch that scene, Hartman is consistently taking a step forward, right? He's he's going for Hartman, kind of soft, right? Hey, now you listen to me. You put that weapon on the ground, right? But he's taking a step forward as he does it, and the reality of that is, uh, it's pretty hard to stop a guy with a gun killing you if you're not right next to him. And so your options become advance or retreat. You know, if you stand still, now you're yeah, you got to pick one. Exactly. And so Hartman does advance, but he advances very slowly as though, you know, it, it's almost hostage negotiator, right? Like if I can just get a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Right. He does closer. seem like he's trying to talk him down from the ledge a little bit just till he can get close enough. And the reason everybody, you know, misses this is because, uh, you know, did your mother not love you enough, or hug you enough, numb nuts or whatever it is, that is the, the crowning line of Hartman's life, right? Um, but it's, it's pretty clear that by that time, he's, he's thinking he's got his in already. And now if I can just slip back into drill instructor mode, maybe I can get this guy to snap to attention. Then it doesn't matter anymore, right? Mm -hmm. But where, you know, Hartman builds to there uh, pretty steadily from, nice, soft, gentle, hey, why don't you just put that weapon on the ground there, buddy? <laughs> right? Now, it probably doesn't sound like that, but I never had a drill instructor talk to me the way that, uh, you know, uh, Hartman talks to talks to Gomer Pyle in that particular scene, right? Uh, or, or Leonard, right? Um, it's very much always, 100% of the time, full tilt screaming. Um, you know, the, these guys are moving 800 miles a minute at all times, as you see Hartman doing through most of the movie, right? Um, it, In fact, it, it's probably pretty easy to watch this movie and sort of feel like you're you're trying to hang on to like a tornado while he's going. And and that's intentional, right? That That's how drone instructors behave and they're supposed to. And so seeing somebody being a drill instructor, but also not being that tornado is, uh, it's the kind of thing that tells you, no, he's, <laughs> he's probably the, the rough equivalent of whatever drill instructors come close to pissing their pants. Yeah. It's as shook as you're ever going to see someone like that, I guess. Exactly. Well, you know, Don, we've, we've done almost an hour and I, I sometimes when I watch this movie, I almost think, and I, this isn't any shade on the rest of the movie that we'll get into here, and maybe we'll have to forego the, the bonus segment because I don't want to. I don't want to leave anyone hanging short here because I think there is a lot of stuff in the, in the second half of this movie. Uh, but it really does feel like almost two separate movies here. We get this this first section uh, that is really the Gomer Pyle story with Joker as sort of a, a secondary character, but yeah, he's probably the most prominent character besides uh, besides Pyle and Hartman. Uh, and then the second half is really just now we're in the war. Now everything that, that Joker was for was was training for. He's the one that we see. We also see, I think, uh, is Cowboy's other buddy who ends up you know, coming into with. But 
because they're almost what what is just your your complete analysis of just I guess the Gomer Pyle story, the the Leonard story. What is your your final thoughts on that part? Because it really is, it's it, it comes back, but it's kind of its own thing in a way too. So it it's interesting insofar as uh, I don't think the beginning half of the movie is the Gomer Pyle story. Um, though I absolutely get how you get there. Uh, the, despite that he is the mechanism that is, uh, a lot of the story is centered around what's generally going on there is Joker is progressing in some fashion. And Gomer Pyle is the first real hardship that he's dealing with. Right. Uh, which is what makes Gomer Pyle going away acceptable. Right. Because if it was, uh, you know, if there wasn't that scene of them uh, cleaning the bathroom, if there wasn't, um, you know, Joker sitting there individually, you know, so this is your rifle. This is how you clean the bolt. This is how you reassemble. Right. On and on and on, you know, left over right, right over left on and on he goes. This this is him dealing with the things that are going on around him, which was a real popular theme of Vietnam movies in general. Right. Is that, uh, and and because mostly uh, Vietnam vets came back and told everybody, like, look, man, you're just in the whirlwind, and you write it the best you can, and that's that. And in that sense, I, I think that's basically what Gomer Pyle is for Joker. He's the first whirlwind that he has to put up with, uh, and how he deals with that is is pretty relevant to the whole rest of his life, or at least within the confines of this movie. You could argue too that the Joker, maybe even more so than Hartman, really created Pyle in a way. He was the squad leader. He was the one that you know. He's the one that really got him to become a really, really good at rifle and taught him how to do everything. And on top of that, who knows? Maybe if it wasn't for Joker's final blows and it was just a normal blanket party, maybe things would have been the same. But you could argue that possibly it was Joker himself's his final blows and and. Pyle being aware of those, that it was Joker delivering that. Everyone else just got one lick and it was Joker, the one that he trusted the most that had taught him everything that was laying into him the hardest and laying into him the most um, that I think maybe is, if it wouldn't have broken him already, it, I mean, that seeing Joker do it is what definitely put him over the edge there. So you could argue that Joker made Pyle more than even Hartman did. It's entirely possible. Uh, I, I am willing to accept the argument. Um, it's uh, hard to believe having actually been through Marine Corps boot camp, but that you know, th there were guys that had an impact on me, my life, and and you know, other guys that you know, for all of my life, I'll remember this. Well, guy I'm more most, most seen, I'm more mo mean from Joker's perspective, from his own perspective, and then how it affected his own psyche. You know, he's been the one hand in hand with him the whole time. If he's if, if he can kill someone, well, Joker really is the one that taught him to kill to be, to be a killer in the end, uh, entirely possible. Uh, and and that. That makes more sense. Uh, I just misunderstood. Um, what are you going to do? Well, there's no you know, right or wrong. We're all interpreting here. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, exactly. That sort of thing then. Uh, in retrospect, I guess, would be a, a decent, you know, how much hand did I have in this kind of discussion? Well, we then, uh, we then follow the story of Joker as we go over to Vietnam. And I, mean, I, I haven't really been bringing it up because, you know, it, 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 it strikes you a lot more when you're watching the movie, but man, this is the best soundtrack in any movie of all time. Every, every song is just a, a banger, a classic banger from, from that time period. It um, really is. And this is where we get, you know, we get the classic 
Me so horny. Me love you long time. We're in Nam. We got these guys, you know, picking up, picking up. I don't know. What, what, what do they call them? I can say gook in the context of we're talking about a movie, right? Sure. Probably not for YouTube, but for everybody eh, else. Yeah, whatever. Everybody. We'll see. We'll see if they can. Uh, it's historical YouTube if, if you're on here. Uh, but if not, we'll remain on Rumble either way. So don't worry, folks. Um, and yeah, this is, <laughs> we're just really setting up um, a Joker. And he's already been here for a while, obviously. His hair is growing out. He's not, he's not necessarily a new soldier. And like you said, he's probably already seen what he saw with, uh, with Gomer Pyle killing Hartman. That was probably more traumatic than what a lot of Marines had seen you know, pr- prior to them being in, in the war. He probably, more so than a lot of other people, I would think, had something crazy happen, than some serious major violence in front of him in a way that maybe even that would affect you more so because, I don't know, there probably is something to the fact that, ah, these are just a bunch of gooks that we're killing and maybe we're not really looking at them the same way. Whereas he definitely saw Hartman and Pyle as, as humans and he saw them both killed within you know 30 seconds of each other. Yeah, uh, that that is almost certainly true. I will say that there is a, uh, and this is probably less true during the draft, but only less. Uh, there is a a predisposition of those who end up in the Marine Corps. Uh, we have very similar <laughs> lives prior to getting there. It's not the same, not even kind of, but there there are through lines. And uh, having had a. Uh, not amazing life prior to that moment is is one of the big ones. Um, again, that said, draft, maybe this doesn't apply here. Uh, drafts are drafts. They just pick numbers and off you go. Um, but most likely, that's, that's the biggest deal. Though, I will say, um, <laughs> a friend of mine, this did not actually happen to me, was in boot camp and they went to the range and somebody put a rifle in their mouth and uh, you know, pull the trigger. And so uh, the M16 has safe single shot and three round bursts. So to make sure he did the job, he put it on three round burst. And for the remainder of his time in boot camp, they called, uh, they referred to it as the motivated three round burst. So Marine Corps method of dealing with death is probably not like yours. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to get, yeah, you're not going to see the same kind of morning necessarily. Uh, yeah, everyone processes things differently, you know? Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we learn here that now, um, interestingly enough, Joker is not, I mean, he, he finds some combat in a bit, but he's not a, a combat guy. He's actually a journalist. So he's in this unit of, I think they're called stars and stripes. So they're basically like the military. They're not really journalists. I, I shouldn't say they're really the, the propaganda guys, because as we'll see in this scene, um, they actually kind of throw, throw a bunch of shade on, on the real journalists that are actually, you know, asking stupid questions like, should we be in the war and stuff like that? What they're there to do is just, you know, they're really there to, pump up the troops and make the troops happier and, and keep them motivated essentially. And, and, and put, you know, put the right PR out to the world. And <clears throat> there's a scene where the, um, the kind of, you know, head of the newspaper, I don't know what, what, what his title is, but um, where he says, basically there's two, first of all, they're talking and he's saying, uh, Joker saying he thinks they're going to be a surprise attack on this tent holiday. Uh, that's the kind of what we're hearing around here. Maybe we should, you know, say something about that. And he's like, nah, dude, that's not going to happen. Don't worry. Anyway, back, back to what we were doing. So what, what's the story so, you're working on? Well, <laughs> he it, just kind of brushes that off. It's worth pausing there. Um, yeah. so if, if you were at all familiar with Vietnam, you're familiar with the Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. And you are probably familiar with the term the Tet Offensive because there was one. Um, you know, he he gives a little speech about the Tet Holiday, right? Uh, and for years in Vietnam, prior to the Tet Offensive, uh, during the Tet Holiday, all offensive operations cease. Period. Everywhere, all the time. 
and so uh, it, it had become uh, in Vietnam a a running idea that one of these years they're they're going to lay siege to everything, um, and that, that's why he's so dismissive. It's not a he thing. Even says that, that yeah, he's like ah, oh, they've been saying that for years. Come on, it, yeah, right. Um, but if you're not you know at least vaguely familiar with it, it it seems like he's just being a douchebag, but. Realistically, this guy probably has, you know, his uh, the guy that he replaced and the guy that he replaced even um, going. Well, yeah, we we keep hearing they're going to attack on Tet, and every year for you know three or four days or whatever it was, nary a VC to be found. So, no, obviously not. You know, we just say this every year. And for those that don't know, uh, well, well deployed. uh, my my deployment briefing from my boss went something like this. All right, we're leaving the United States. Uh, believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see. Because, you know, um, there there's a, a TV show, or HBO did a miniseries uh, called Generation Kill. And like the opening of the series is, oh my God, did you hear J-Lo is dead? And these things really happen. The, the rumors on deployments are ridiculous. The rumor, rumors, as soon as you have no capability to verify them, just go completely out the window, right? Uh, you know, I, I heard your mom was getting gangbanged in a truck stop, which, to be fair, is probably not a joke that you want to make because it's a good way to get punched. But at the same time, you know, oh, I, man, I, I heard Bob's mom was getting gangbanged at a truck stop. That might happen. <laughs> so, you know, it's... Well, it probably seems like, you know, you're being really cavalier about this, dude. But at the same time, he kind of should be. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes it such a brilliant uh, offensive, I guess. It's a, they played the, the real long game. You almost wonder, did they, did they intentionally sprinkle rumors in years prior and not deliver on them just to further, like, cre- like they're like, we're, you know, because they know they're going to be entrenched in this for years. So, you know, maybe we don't actually do the offensive for years. We just leak the rumors out. They see that we're never going to do that because it's our holiday. And then, then we really do it. it maybe. Um, or maybe I'm giving, too, giving them too much credit. There's, uh, it, it depends uh, entirely on whether or not you believe the Vietnamese generals after the war. Um, and if you believe the Vietnamese generals after the war, you don't have the opinion that we lost Vietnam, and that's not a popular opinion on the internet, so I'd guess that most mm. people don't. Uh, which is to say that um, they thought they were losing right then and there, and that there there was not going to be a time where they were reasonably going to be able to win. And so they knew that they just, to, you know, they, they had been, you know, peaceful for the Tet holiday for years and years at this point. And so the Americans had, had gotten lax right um complacent for those who demand the term be used uh during this holiday because everybody knew there's no fighting right and if everybody knows there's no fighting then you've got guys you know not even wearing t-shirts playing baseball instead of carrying a rifle and manning a post right and so the uh the vietnamese decided that well if they're going to be so lackadaisical and we're only going to take one shot anyway and if we win we win if we don't we're screwed this is the time to take it. And truth be told, it's a good tactical maneuver, right? A decent strategic maneuver even, right? Hey, we might be able to legitimately win this war in one fell swoop. Uh, and if you listen to what the Vietnamese say happened, they got slaughtered en masse. Uh, and that, it, you know, there there's a, a couple of recitations that basically come down to if the Americans had marched north with two men and a dog, we couldn't have stopped them. 
And, and so, <laughs> you know, uh, it's that, that's how you end up with that, according to them. Um, now, the way that you end up with that, according to the New York Times, is that, you know, they, they had always been winning and this time was just going to be the coup de grace. Mm, believe whatever you want. I really don't care. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how, I mean, even the propaganda of the time, not even the time of the movie, but the time that this is supposed to be playing place can make its way into the movie too. I also, I, I just, this kind of just occurred to me, but it's, it's way from the first part of the movie. There is a scene where Arlie Ermey's character, where Sergeant Hartman is talking about snipers. And I think this is such a crucial actually part of the movie that I feel like a moron glossing over it. But he talks about different snipers. He talks about this one sniper, I forget his name, but he was a sniper that killed a bunch of people at, at this clock tower in Texas. And then he talked about also Lee Harvey Oswald. And it's interesting to me too that he makes, well, first of all, he's, he's propagating the JFK narrative. So that's just one thing, but whatever. I don't need to go on a JFK thing right now. But he also, it's interesting that he doesn't really distinguish, he doesn't really distinguish them as bad at all. He He's very amoral about about Lee Harvey Oswald, about this other killer. He's more just impressed. He's more just saying like, do you know how far they were shooting? Do you know how far that distance was? And he's just doing it to show them like how good they can be. He's displaying them as being the best Marines. He was even saying, what do you think they were? And yeah, they were Marines. And I just find that pretty interesting. So, uh, (laughs) the Marine Corps doesn't care about these things. Uh, The PR side of the Marine Corps very much cares if you... Uh, the term is give the Marine Corps a black eye. They, mm-hmm. they don't like it. Um, but uh, once you get down to guys with rifles, uh, Marines don't care. Uh, you, you are executing a skill in a supreme capacity. Maybe not are the you, way are you that good you should. Or not? You know, we're just but, looking at the skill level and we're impressed. We're not you know, saying, we're not right? making any other judgments one way it, or the other. Exactly, right? You know, they uh, every Marine is a rifleman is stamped on everything in the world and oh, you you're taking you're taking thousand yard shots with an old Italian bolt action. You say, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, so uh, we now kind of see Joker. He's he's got a new buddy named uh, Rafterman, and they're going on on this assignment. And um, they end up getting sent to uh, this cowboy who who Joker was in the squad with to to his unit. Um, there's also this this. I, forget, I don't think it was Animal Mother. I think it was before we met Animal Mother. There was the other guy when they're in the helicopter and he's just he's just lighting people up and, and he's, he's saying there's two, what does he say? He says there's, there's two kind of VCs, which is what they're calling anyone who's a Viet Cong, which is how they're supposed to identify who they're supposed to kill. You're only supposed to kill Viet Congs because they're the enemy. So he says there's two kinds. There's the kinds that are uh, running towards you. You know, those are the kinds that you're going to kill and there's the kinds that are running away. And I think in, in reality, the kinds that are running away are the kinds you're not supposed to kill. But to him, he's saying, you know, the kinds running away, they're just, they're more organized or something, something like that. And he's basically saying, I'm killing everybody and I got 157 kills and, you know, that's my that's our first I find it interesting that's our first that's actually the first soldier we actually meet that's been in combat is this guy in the helicopter if if they run they're a VC if they stay they're a well trained VC they're well trained that's what it is they say they're well trained VC Uh, so this guy is is basically an output of propaganda um, and don't don't get me wrong. It's the um, just we we were murdering civilians, and uh, that's why we had to spit on the soldiers, like yeah, all that propaganda. Exactly, and mm-hmm. it, you know, yes, the Milai massacre happened, and blah blah blah. Fine, um, but the, you know the 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 idea that the U.S. military was out there hosing down civilians for the sake of hosing down civilians is not true, and you know that primarily because there's still people alive in Vietnam. 
Uh, and that <laughs> might sound ridiculous Because there you. would not be much of a country left, I guess, if that was what they were really doing. And well, so uh, in the, the Seven-Day War, um, years later, um, the, the, the Iranians or whatever it is called up a Vietnamese general because they, they got this idea that, uh, you know, hey, the Israelis are getting all their equipment from the Americans. They're probably getting all their tactics from the Americans. Well, who's most recently fought the Americans, the Vietnamese? Well, let's go call up one of their generals and ask him how that went. Uh, and so they, they sit him down and, you know, hey, what do you think we should do? And how do you think we should deal with this? And well, you know, you fought the Americans. What's fighting the Americans like? And and there, the, the you know, wh whoever it is that he's talking to's opinion is that he kind of drops to a thousand yards there and says, the Americans just cut down everything. That's how they fight, right? And so, you know, they, they know damn good and well we weren't doing that because if we thought every Vietnamese was the, you know, a Vietnamese person was the enemy, we would have just killed them all, right? <laughs> And that's that's our enemy's view of us. That's that's not my view. I didn't say that. It was, you know, it, and don't get me wrong, I will in a thousand other contexts. But in this circumstance, right, you know, we asked somebody that we fought, and his answer was, look, man, they just destroy everything. They they kill people, they break stuff, just good God, avoid it at all costs, which is what I want our enemies to think of us. So you think even that Vietnamese general like was actually just believing some propaganda that he didn't have as much awareness on the ground of what was really happening. Uh, I doubt it. Um, you know, or do you think that's just like, why, why do you think this Vietnamese general, I think is, is saying that, I guess I'm, I'm missing. Uh, so, I mean, he fought us in Vietnam. That, that was his opinion of what going up against the U S military was like. Okay. Is that You're they, saying, well, dude, you ain't seen nothing, buddy. <laughs> well, so keep in mind, keep, keep in mind the context of this, right? So if you're, if you're the head of a town, you might have the opinion that Americans walk in, they, they, go through every house, they, you know, flip over every chair, uh, any number of things. And if anybody even starts a fight with them, they just lay waste to that person and anything remotely near them. If you're a general, you're in charge of troops. And your time uh, encountering the U.S. military is with probably no less than 4,000 guys, right? And if you have 4,000 guys that are fighting the U.S. military, the U.S. military is a combined arms military, right? Which means... Right at the beginning, if you're really lucky, you're dealing with 13 guys, right? A squad. Now, there's no particular reason a general's fighting a squad, unless you're talking about the SOG guys, in which case they're only fighting four. Ish, right? At least Americans. But if you're engaging at a, uh, you know, a, a division size, right? Or, or at least a regiment size slash brigade, you're probably engaging other fairly large forces, which means at the beginning, you know, go, go watch. We were soldiers, right? Uh, at the beginning, you've got guys with M16s, M203s, uh, M60s, right? And in short order, somebody stands up an antenna and then the planes show up and the planes are literally throwing fire from the sky. Right? <laughs> and shortly uh, before to after uh, a different antenna goes up and wherever you and a bunch of your guys are, artillery starts landing. And so whole football fields at a time just turn into pink mist. So yeah, if I'm a general in the Vietnamese army, I probably do think that the Americans just kill everybody. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we get a uh, Joker kind of gets into this unit uh, that Cowboy is a part of. So they have a little reunion there and uh, he meets some of these guys. He meets some of the new characters. Really? I think the, the one really worth talking about here is, uh, is animal mother. <laughs> 
He's the one. He has a confrontation right away with Joker, who is, as as the name implies, he's a Joker, always doing his John Wayne impressions and making his cracks. And the animal mother is just having none of it and kind of steps to him and basically just you know says, I kill everything and you know, whatever. So what what are your impressions of Animal Mother? Um not unrealistic. um you know it so by the time i got military deployments were no longer two plus years uh which is is what they were in vietnam right you know that's why they talk about rotations and being there forever and this sort of thing uh marine corps deployments were seven months um no less uh there there are definitely guys i know who were getting um stuff thrown at them on a regular enough basis that, um, you know, I just blow it up is becomes the right answer, whether, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you might think of that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, the, the humor is dark and that's being generous. Um, oh yeah. You know, the, we're about to get to the scene where they're celebrating the birthday of the, the dead gook. So yeah, I mean, I'd say it's indeed right. It's, it's a little uh, dark. And, you know, the, the again, I'm saying Duke in historical context of reviewing a film. Exactly. YouTube. Uh, but, you know, the 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 attitudes are over the top and they should be right. Uh, I mean, do you really want guys running into machine gun fire who are like, oh, no, I don't know if this is a good idea. Or should their attitude be like, nope, I'm bulletproof. And by the way, we're going to go kill that guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's what you get. <laughs> and that and that is what you get, which we'll we'll get to in, in sort of the, the final scene of the film a little later. That that literally is quite exactly what what Animal Mother does in the end. Um, so yeah, let's see. Just trying to track my notes here a little bit. Um, pretty, but pretty much not long after this, the uh, the Tet Offensive. Or no, I kind of I think I have things out of order. Yeah, the Tet Offensive does happen, and then that then after that is when uh, Joker gets 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 put as part of this unit uh, that Cowboy is a part of. Uh, yeah, meets Animal Mother, and then this is where Joker gets grilled by. Um, I don't know what was this a sergeant or what have you uh, about this. Now he has on his helmet, he has a born uh, a sticker that says born to kill or he drew it on there. And then he also has a peace sign on the helmet. So he gets grilled about that. And he's saying, well, why do you have a peace sign? And why does it say born to kill? Like, what is this? At first he says, I don't know. And then that was not an acceptable answer. So he asked him again. He says, I suppose it has something to do with the duality of man, the Jungian thing. So if it wasn't clear from like, just the 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 symbology and everything we saw in the first half of the movie, the the shadow self. Uh, they're pretty Kubrick's putting putting it pretty much on the nose here yeah. that he is doing a, a Jungian psychology with this really this whole movie. Um, and there are probably a number of characters you could apply this to because this this whole thing, this whole story. I mean, the the whole idea of creating the Marines is taking that shadow side, accessing that shadow, and you know putting it to good to good use. Well, that, use. Is, that is the hope, anyway, right? Um, right. And and. For the, the sake of enlisted everywhere, I will correct you about this guy's rank. He's a either Please, a colonel, yeah, that, lieutenant. That's why colonel. I kept hesitating because I know I'm going to fuck up every rank and sound like it. But that's oh, why you're here. So I'm, I'm happy to let correct lots away. of them go, but uh, <laughs> this is a very officer question. Um, you know why? Why is your why? Why do you have a peace sign on your uniform? Right, fuck right off, guy. Um, and the the answer is because it's funny, right? Um, and in, that would have been a good answer, actually. I'm the Joker. It's funny. I don't know. Yeah. Not not to an officer, it isn't right. Well, maybe you, you, not, you basically never get to, to answer me, it officers been a good answer. with uh, it's funny, right? You know, if it was a sergeant, because because it's funny, goddamn it, right? Uh, 
And uh, look, those, those sorts of things go on. Um, but the, the the very stick up your ass mentality is is an officer only mentality, right? I mean, um, well, not only you know somebody's going to whine and correct me in the comments, but primarily, uh, and that kind of thing is is an officer mentality, uh, and that that's why the answer is so you know uh, intellectual, at least. Presuming that a Marine had input on this, that's why. Because you you office, answer officers with intellectual things. You you tell them they're enlisted because it's funny. Um, and it as much as it, there is some, you know, the, I, I mean, he says it, duality of man to this, right? Um, th- this is this is a problem that the Marine Corps suffers from a lot. You know, the duality of man kind of problem, uh, which is notably a giant problem right now uh you know the the marine corps will happily publish a picture of a marine picking up a six-year-old in the middle of a gunfight and running off to the sideline with that six-year-old to move them to safety uh and that's that's the picture the marine corps tries to sell because people like that picture uh like yeah we're killers (laughs) but we can help grandma across the street exactly right and and so you know uh, that that's what you see. There, there, there is a very famous picture of exactly what I just described, um, and there, there is an expectation that you do that, right? You know, the it's a picture you get shown in boot camp that goes, uh, uh, "Look, we kill the enemy, but we killed the enemy." You know, right? The six year old is clearly not the enemy, um, and it's it's probably the only throw in the whole movie to yeah, they're people too, right? <laughs> you know. Right, we we just kind of continue. Well, speaking of people too, we we go through a few different war scenes. You know, as as Joker uh, and uh, Rafter Man are embedded with uh, Cowboys unit, and they have one of their guys dies in this one scene, and there's this funeral scene. I don't think they ever even sh- show the guy, but they're all standing around and talking about this 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 the, you know their dead comrade here and it turns out his name is Handjob. i don't know if there was much purpose to the scene other than to make me laugh because it did his name was Handjob because he was actually going to get sent out from he was going to get shipped away for jerking off too much and then joker just thinks he's just you know, just joking around he's like no really he jerked off 10 times a day so much that they had to <laughs> they sent him to the psychiatrist and they actually were going to ship him off for having this mental disorder so uh, what did you think of the whole Handjob story i don't know if there's any <laughs> deep meaning to it but it, it, did, it did did make me laugh uh well, I don't know that there's deep meaning to it either. Uh I, I guess you could assign some it's amazing what people will do to get out of war kind of meaning there you to go. it. Yeah. Um but this guy's willing to jerk off all day every day just to just to get out of the war. There's there's a a premise here that is true. Um and when you have to imagine in so, in, in the real life version of this character, like yeah, he's just come up with this crazy way to get out of the war. Like, it's not... <laughs> no one can really Probably. have that much of a problem with masturbating that they can't... But I, I suppose if he did have that much of a problem, if he, if he really couldn't control it, you really don't need that guy on, on the battlefield with you. Exactly, right. You know, I mean, hey, it, it would help if you had at least one hand on the rifle there, buddy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is my rifle, this is my gun, right? Um, so, Animal Mother... Let's see, we have the funeral for, for hand job, And I, I, I thought part of this was interesting that during this animal mother says like, this isn't about, but he's not saying this in the anti-war way at all. Uh, he's saying like, this isn't, we're not here fighting for freedom. Like this is a slaughter, 
but he's not saying it in the way you would you would think it would be said in a movie that was trying to give you an anti-war message which i don't feel like this movie when you when you talk about some of the stuff like the guy in the helicopter yeah there are clear things that it is trying to be you know sort of play that that leftist anti-war sort of type of vibe but um i think a lot of the characters it's not so much and especially for i mean we're not supposed to necessarily like animal mother either so maybe by him being being heartless about it. It is supposed to be anti-war in a way, but I like Animal Mother, so I don't know. But he just says, this is a slaughter, and this is what we're doing. And he's kind of heartless about it, but he's kind of just like, yeah, no big deal. We'll move on. He died. We'll, a bunch of us are going to die. Like, this is what we're doing. All right, let's go. Let's keep going. So, there's a, a weird thing that happens when people die in wars where kind of nobody really knows what to do. Um, and as far as I can tell, that problem is really long lasting. Like we know what to do when we get back to somewhere safe, be that, um, you know, your, your patrol base or the United States or whatever. We, we have our funerals, um, you know, the boots, rifles, dog tags, uh, that, you know, your, your helmet on top of the rifle. We know all those things, but right there in the moment is kind of a, I don't know. Uh, we'll deal with this when we can mm-hmm. because to some degree it's going to sound heartless as fuck you're busy right I mean if somebody just died they they probably didn't have a stroke right you're not and you're you can't halt store. the production in the middle of a battle you can't right. say hey everybody <laughs> oh yo one of our guys is down can we just take a minute here we gotta right. as you can imagine we're a little shooken up <laughs> exactly right and so in in a lot of sense there is a lot of like yep well, that that's great. Move on. Um, and there's not really anything else to do about it. Um, and again, probably sounds heartless as fuck, you know. But at the same time... It's a, it's a feature, not a, a bug. Is that the, the phrase? I mean, yeah, it's heartless as fuck because yeah. you kind of have... The point is you kind of have to be to be an effective Marine. And there's really not a way around this, right? What do you... You know, if you stop and, and have a little siesta, then uh, everybody's going to die, right? <laughs> and that's kind of a bigger problem than that, you know, Bob died. And so, yeah, no, he's, he's and right. And Bob's already it. dead, so. Exactly. Right. You know, what, what are you going to do? I, I don't happen to have a resurrection uh, scroll hanging out in my back pocket to solve this problem, so. Right. Well, this kill all the things. This whole idea will play into our our final scene. I think this is a couple things I want to touch on that we can get to the, this this final scene and um one is a funny thing and one is a uh, let's see the funny thing is that they they go to these hookers again and the hooker doesn't want to doesn't want to fuck the the soul brother because he's afraid he's going to be too too boku too big and too he boku. whips it out not for the camera thankfully but he shows it to her and he's like. That's a fine piece of Alabama steel, but <laughs> but it's not too Boku. And she's like, oh, all right. So no deep meaning there, but it's, it's a funny scene. There is also another scene in there where these reporters are there like filming the war, you know, like, and I, I don't, it's not Joker because they're actually asking like some of these questions. Like, do you think we belong in the war? Do you think we should be in the war? And a lot of them, most of them are, there's definitely no, like none of the soldiers are really anti-war. Some of them are like, I don't know if we should be here, but it's not really my job to know if we should be here. That's sort of a separate thing. I'm here to, to do my job. Uh, there's a couple lines that took out though. The, the, the one I just called soul brother. I'm not sure what they called him, but that's what they called. That's what they mentioned to him in one scene. So that's what he has in my notes. But he's, he said, they took away our freedom and gave it and gave it to the kooks, but they don't even want it. They'd rather be alive than free. Those dumb bastards. I think that was my favorite of, of all the, of all the interviews. Did any of those stand out to you in that scene? 
Uh, Animal Mothers is particularly great. Animal Mother has a, has a couple of good lines in there. I, I don't know if we belong in Vietnam, but I know I belong in Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, also says, he, said, he also says, I think if you ask me, I think we're shooting the wrong gooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it looked, it, the, the whole line, you know, of, of interviews is, is, uh, Nobody wants to, dear, dear reporters everywhere, actually, come to think of it, leave the freaking Marines alone. First of all, they don't want to answer your questions. And second of all, you don't want their answers, right? <laughs> exactly, right. The, the guy closest to giving you a real answer was, in fact, Animal Mother. Right? I, mean, I think that's, he. I mean, the more, like, the more times I watch this movie, obviously the first time I watch this, I'm like a teenager and I am an idiot. So I'm like, oh, he's bad. But uh, yeah, he is a bad, he is bad, I guess. I guess you could say, in, in a sense, he's as bad as you need to be to be to be a fucking Marine. And But the more I watch this movie, the more I like this character, the, maybe the most, because he's, he's the most most honest character. All right. You might not like the answers. They're not what you want to hear necessarily, but he's giving the most truthful, the most, the most real answers. He's the most real motherfucker in this thing. Oh, he really is. Um, he's, uh, soul brother at the, the, uh, I don't remember this guy's name either. Yeah. Um, he's a soul brother now. So often unimportant in the movie, but you know, when they introduce animal mother, you know, right after he gets done giving Joker a ration of crap, soul brother leans over uh, animal mother's shoulder and says, believe it or not, uh, you know, the, he's the best guy to know in a gunfight. All he needs is somebody to throw hand grenades at him the rest of his life. <laughs> and look, you can think whatever you want of that guy, but when I'm getting shot at, I do want that guy next to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so now we can kind of get to what, what becomes the final scene. They're, they're kind of going through this, uh, this village and, and whatnot. And they're patrolling this destroyed vi village. And then uh, I think it's the one they called crazy. that gets shot first by the sniper. Um, and it's really like, uh, it's really funny. Like a like cowboy calls in. He's like, Hey, uh, this guy's down. I don't think he's going to make it. He was like the lead of the, the head of the patrol. And, uh, and they, they, the guy on the radio calls back. He's like, all right, well, uh, you're next in command. So you're in charge. So see you later. <laughs> he's just like, Oh, I just wrote down like, man, that's, that's some way to get a promotion, you know? Yeah. Your guy dies, and then you're field just promotions. Charge. Yeah, uh, and it, 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 it happened, but less now. And they basically just tell him, "Yep, can, keep going. <laughs> you know, you gotta you keep moving on." So, so now Cowboy's in charge here, and um, they go wild, like shooting up this building where they think these. Well, at first they think it's snipers or whoever is shooting out at them, uh, and then in 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 the middle of all this, uh, this who I call Snow Soul Brother also gets shot. He goes down, and they you know some of the guys want to want to go bring him in and, and help him. And Cowboy, who's in charge now, is saying like, "No, we can't, we can't, we can't all go run in there because we're going to get shot too. We can't lose him." And then he's also trying to call in backup. He's trying to call in this tank, and he's been calling it like for the last like you know five ten minutes of the, of the movie. He's called a couple times, and then this time they call back. They're like, "Yeah, I don't really think that that tank's going to happen." And so uh, just keep moving through. So he's, so he's just like, well, fuck, I guess, I guess we got to keep moving through. And before they can sort of reorganize, uh, I think it was, I don't know if Doc, Doc J is soul brother. Doc, Doc J is the other guy, right? The other guy that ran Doc out J after him. Yeah, so he, yeah. he just says, fuck it. I'm going for him. He runs out to try to, to pull soul brother in um, and he gets shot too. So now this, now these two guys are down. And this is when Animal Mother basically challenges Cowboy's authority on the field. Cowboy says, "Like we're not, we're not going to go get him. We're just gonna. I know it's heartless, but it's just going to get all of us shot if we, if we go." And Animal Mother's like, "Well, we're not leaving them behind." He's like, and, and he basically threatens him, sort of threatens him, but very weakly. He's like, "That's a direct order." And now, an Animal Mother's just like, "All right, whatever, dude." 
Cause he knows he's, what's he really going to do. Cause, cause let's be honest, animal mother is the alpha of this group and there's just no question about that. So I don't know how it might really work in the Marines. Maybe you can clarify, uh, but you know, is there other ever situations like that where there is someone sort of in charge of a unit where someone else is clearly is more of the alpha, but I don't know if it would be to this extreme that they would actually end up just listening to the other guy. So, um, but maybe yeah, there's a story is the super short answer. Um, uh, while I was in Afghanistan, I happened to be standing in uh, command tent, and uh, I watched my commanding officer call out to a, a patrol base that we had that said, hey, there's some other Marines who are coming by your position uh, who forgot to bring food and water, so give them all of yours. And the guy on the other end of the radio, whose name I will forego because he deserves no punishment for this, and I think he's still in, uh, said, uh, hey, sir, when are you going to resupply us? And uh, the, the CEO called back and said, uh, I don't really know, but we definitely will. And he went, the guy out on the patrol base said, uh, well, uh, I can give them half of the food that I have and half of the water that I have. But if you don't know when you can resupply me, I'm, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. And so this goes back and forth three or four times. And the guy that's out on the patrol base uh, shut off his radio. Now, the one that was saying, well, no, I can't supply you guys that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, look, you're, you're going to do something reasonable or the guys that I am looking after uh, are going to get taken care of because they're my responsibility. And if you don't like that, pound sand. And literally nothing ever came of that. Mm. Um, that is a, you know, this is a direct order from a commissioned officer kind of moment. And uh, the answer was, nope, fuck you. Right. right. So not everything and, is going to necessarily be by the books because obviously obeying it, disobeying a direct order like that would be problematic, but there's context and probably certain people go, yeah, well, he did the right thing. And then it just gets overlooked. Uh, so yes, uh, there, there are less clear cut cases where, you know, that, that sort of shit happens. I, I definitely watched a, a staff sergeant tell a, a corporal to do something. That corporal said, if you talk to me again, I'm going to beat the fuck out of you. Uh, nothing came of that either. <laughs> Uh, that particular staff sergeant was kind of a piece of shit. Um, and the entire command hated him. He, he, he got his ass whooped a couple of times while we were over there. Cause he was just a fucking piece of garbage. So, uh, you know, I, I make the argument a lot that the military does not just follow orders. Uh, and, and nobody ever believes me, but they don't. Um, uh, and they're, regardless of uh, you know any true story that may or may not have happened, one of those things that is true about this particular situation is, uh, one, you don't let Marines go places in combat zones by themselves. So the moment Animal Mother takes off running, somebody's going with him. And as soon as somebody's going with him, two somebody's going, then three, then five, right? You know, oh, hey, we're doing this. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the easiest way to piss off Marines is to kill a Marine. Uh, so much so that there's there's a hundred years of quotes from our enemies that all come down to the most dangerous thing on a battlefield is a dead Marine because somewhere nearby there's a hundred live Marines looking for this one. <laughs> and so, you know, that there is a simple reality that one of the things that makes Marines behave the way that they do is if you get shot, uh, there's no less than three other guys who are going to kill whoever shot you and come get you. And they're not going to stop uh, until they're all dead. And that is the expectation. And if you, I don't care how intelligent your orders are. Uh, if you tell a giant pile of Marines, hey, 
Uh, we're just going to let that guy die. The likelihood that somebody goes, no, we're not, is pretty high. Well, that's pretty much exactly what happens in this scene. Uh, Animal Mother says, fuck it, I'm going. I'm going to run cover. And I, he just goes out. And I, I thought it was pretty interesting, too. Like, so much, at least for a, a civilian like myself, so much of the time in the beginning and the training scenes is all about holding the rifle right way, holding this and that. And then we see Animal Mother. He's just going in, like, one-armed, like just, just, like, just firing away, which I don't know. I don't know if that's how you're supposed to do it, but maybe in in maybe it's just a cool scene. Like, I, I don't really know, but it... it I'm I'm rooting for him at that point, you know. Uh, he's got me. He's got me wrapped around his little animal mother finger, and he goes in and he kind of gets a little bit of cover. He doesn't get shot, and he he asks Doc J. He says, "Where's the sniper?" And right as Doc just points in the direction of the sniper, he gets to, they both get lit up, and they're him and Soul Brother. They're gone. Uh, but I mean, it was it was the you know at first you think he's just trying to save the guys, and that's kind of what he's talking about. But then it, it seems like animal mother's kind of smart because he's like well all right i'm fucked i'm gonna get one bit of information it's exactly where the sniper is and they did point in the right direction so then that allowed animal mother to pretty much without before it became official uh take control of this unit and he says all right send up he even yells back to cowboy he's like all right send the other guys in let's go and cowboy's like all right i guess we're not i guess i'm not i mean he pretty much seeds his leadership immediately and just said just does exactly what animal mother tells him to do uh not long before uh that uh, cowboy himself gets gets shot and gets killed, which which uh, it it felt like uh, it felt like a long time coming. I don't, he felt like he was a very hesitant leader, I guess, in the first place, and he didn't he didn't want to be in that role. And uh, yeah, I guess luckily for him, he didn't he didn't last very long in it. Well, um, it, so if if you're second in command, right, you're you're not making decisions that people's lives depend on. And that is a very different position than being the guy who makes decisions that life, uh, people's lives depend on. There's a very high likelihood in a real military that uh, this guy would have at some point been moved out of that position, um, probably promoted, honestly, uh, despite that that is not the best answer, but that is as often as not how you get rid of these guys is you promote them or you trade them to somebody else or whatever. Um, not sexy, but effective. And so uh, that he, he picked up command from somebody else right then and there. Um, look, the hesitation gets you killed. And uh, I, I don't even care if that was the intent of that scene, I approved that it demonstrated it. It's, it certainly did. Yeah, I don't know if it was the intent either, but I mean, he, if to talk about hesitant, I mean, Cowboy was the most hesitant of any of these guys during that whole sort of final scene. And, and yeah, and, and it cost him. Whereas Animal Mother, seemingly, you know, maybe he was not being smart running into it in like that, but he didn't hesitate and, well, he survived. So maybe there is a lesson there. Maybe. Um, and I have no idea how much Marines were involved in, in the writing of the script. Um, less than shockingly, the the uh, somewhat heroic figure that is Gunny Ermey uh, is where all information about this movie for most of the Marine Corps is mm -hmm. is at. Because let's let's face it, um, you know, he's great and Marines love him more than most people. Uh, but that said, it, it's a very... You could almost use that scene as as a Marine Corps training video. Um, you know, a, a lot of the things they do with weapons are wrong. A lot of the things they do, uh, you know, their their movements are not amazing. Uh, on and on. And and I I can already hear the pedants down below. Oh my god, I can't believe you said that sort of thing. That's not what I mean. Uh, 
in the world of of combat leadership, um, you know, hey, go over there, assault that thing as quickly and as intelligently as possible is the guiding principle. Mm-hmm. And only one of them is demonstrating that, right? And it's it's animal mother, hundred percent. You know, hey, uh, you know, I got a machine gun and uh, a pair of brass balls, <laughs> and that's what this takes. Yeah. Um, and that's that's kind of a whether you like it or not kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, yes, the, again, for all, all you grunts who are furiously typing comments, um, I'm not saying their tactics are great. I'm saying just simply on the point of this mentality, you could reasonably use it as, uh, as a training uh, aid to say, look, hesitate, you die, uh, go kill the enemy, you live. Yep. Now, you can argue whether that's true or not if you want, but it is the mentality of the Marine Corps. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it definitely displays that mentality here. And then right right after he dies, they're like, you know, no hesitation at all. Animal Mother just looks, pretty much looks Joker straight in the eye because this is Joker's guy now. Now it's it's personal now. It's not just the Marines. This is actually the guy that that he knows and goes back years with. He looks at Joker and says, are you ready to go get some pay? All right, let's go get some payback. And now Joker yeah. for the first, well, I think he, he doesn't hesitate in a bad way. He just kind of, I think he takes like a, a second to slowly just go, yep. Let's do All it. Right. Okay. He, says, yeah. he just says, okay. Uh, it's it's not, it's almost emotionless, I would say. He's not excited or hesitant. He's just like, correct. This is this is now what we do next. Uh very yeah. much in the, almost in the style of animal mother animal mother, just in the sort of the, the matter of factness. Like, correct, that is the next step. We shall go do that now. Um well, so there there's your there's your transition for the the you know hidden meanings of uh, you know, what what does it take to become animal mother, right? Because because Joker's a carefree guy mm-hmm. who's you know uh, lighthearted and all these things he, yeah okay still dark humored uh but in one instant this guy that he's known since he became a marine changes his life it's it's no longer you know that this is a thing that is that is miles away that i'm reporting on after the fact now it's this guy that i know in front of my face and you got to think Animal Mother didn't show up as Animal Mother. I mean, he was probably a tough dude or something, but he probably didn't have the same ability to just, you know, push through all that violence. I mean, it probably took some years in the war to create Animal Mother, I would imagine, or at least, at least the fully realized leader version that we see that he is here. Um, I got to head off soon, so we're getting we're, we, we've gone deep on this one, but we're 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 going to kind of race to the end here. Although this is pretty much is where things wind down as they. I, I, f- I find this interesting. I'm not sure why Kubrick did this, but we we do find out towards the end that all this time these fucking dudes are getting lit up by this sniper. This sniper is just one chick, and animal animal mother is the one that knew though he, he didn't know he was a chick, but he's the one that's been saying the whole time it's just one sniper, it's just one sniper. We're not retreating. Like let's go. There's one person. There's all of us. Len, he was totally right. Not only was it one sniper, it was just this one chick. It was pretty pretty fucking good shot. But in the end, she just comes out and you know and and tries to you know shoot everybody, and she does get shot. Uh, and then the, this this final scene here is is where she she's kind of begging him. Uh, she barely speaks English, but she's able to pretty much say like "kill me" to Joker as he stands over her. And you know he animal mother just kind of says like "no," like let her just let her suffer. Let's just leave her here. Let let the rats get her. She doesn't deserve you know she doesn't deserve any kind of like mercy killing or anything here. But it is Joker in the end who it's interesting because it's the first time we see. Joker, I mean, he he was in combat situations with them. It's not clear if he really saw any actual combat until this part of the film, but, you know, where Joker actually does kill someone. So it's the first time we see him engage in violence, and I think it's interesting because it's also is the act of mercy at the same time that Animal Mother was was opposed to him doing. So while he has, he has sort of crossed a threshold in a way that he is, it's almost like, you know, 
his version of maybe the um, you know letting the shadow in when when he sees Cowboy die and he says, "All right, yeah, let's go get payback." But he does still. He certainly hasn't been overtaken by the shadow, I guess, in the same way that that uh, Leonard Gower Pyle was uh, in the first part of the movie. He still has that. Uh, yeah, he still got the Joker in there, and he he decided to kill her as a sort of an act of of sympathy as well. There. So, what do you think about this this final scene before they they sing Mickey Mouse and and trot their way to the end? Um, the female sniper thing is is really clearly intentional. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, in fact, there's a book by a guy named Gunnery Sergeant Carlos Hathcock that discusses uh, sniper and counter-sniper engagements in Vietnam. Uh, he is the guy that held the world record shot until that Canadian broke it with, you know, a whole bunch of technology just a few years ago. Uh, and he talks a lot about a lot of their snipers were women. Uh, and a lot of the reason for that was that the women could move freely. Uh, men might get stopped and searched, but we kind of just let women do whatever they want. Uh, and so they could carry around a rifle and then be snipers and uh, on and on. And the Vietnamese had no problem having women engage in war. So that's what you got. Um, in relation to what goes on with Joker there, um, that that seems a lot like a trying to find your humanity in the worst of uh, that this life has to offer. And maybe I'm just reading into that, but uh, you know, there, there are a lot of guys who have a lot of hard memories about the first time they killed somebody. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think it is fair enough to say that Kubrick talked to enough Marines in making this, or at least to get enough guys who are in Vietnam to have some semblance of the idea that if you were put in that position, it'd be real hard on you. And, and how do you even find the humanity in that situation specifically because guys don't like shooting women. Yeah. I mean, and talk, I mean, this goes back to, to, I mean, what Joker said himself, he said, ah, something about the dichotomy of man, but this, this displays it perfectly. I mean, it's, it's his first kill. As far as we know, I, I believe that is his, his first time he's actually had to pull the trigger on someone and, and he's not the one that shot her initially. So like he didn't cause the initial act of violence, but he was there going in, as part of the payback. So, uh, he, it is his first like kill as a soldier, but it's also, is an act of mercy at the same time. So even within that very act, there is a, a certain dichotomy to it too. It is sort of displaying the born to kill and the, the peace sign in, in that same moment. Indeed. All right. Well, Don, we have, uh, we have done a hell of a deep dive on this one. It's almost appropriate that we did like a double length show here because this is, it is kind of like two movies. They do tie in obviously. And it is, if you really, as we did here today, I think you can really, tie it through Matthew Modine Joker's story and see how important that first half of the movie is to where he gets in the second half of the movie. So I'm glad we were able to, you know, take the time and to get all these insider stories. I'm so glad that I chose you to come on, on the show and break it down and give us your real perspective and not just have me here naming people the wrong shit and naming the wrong, you know, all that stuff. So <laughs> thank you for being here to, to correct me and provide a lot of cool stories and insight. Don, really appreciate it. Uh, I know you're not really doing too much content anymore. You mentioned X. Anything else you want to mention by, by your X account or is that just, that's just the one for the moment? For the moment, that's it. Uh, thank you for having me, and I, I hope I have not been too much of a pedant on the uh, military corrections. <laughs> not at all. Are there any uh, any final words you want to give about this movie? What, how, what would you rate this movie on a scale of, I don't know, what's what's your what's your rating system? Five stars, one out of ten? I'll let you choose. Uh, five is as good. As high as possible, uh, right? And, right uh, and, you know, yeah, basically. Uh, I mean, th this is the, the soul of the Marine Corps movie for a lot of people and not wrongly and I am kind of one of them I, I love this movie to death holds up better than almost anything so if you by some miracle have not watched this please do and god forbid you haven't watched this in your marine like 
fix yourself right now. Well, I hope you haven't. I help you if you haven't watched it that you watched it before listening to us spoil the whole movie for two hours. <laughs> but if if not, it's still worth watching. I mean, I, I've seen this probably dozens of times at, at this point. I'm sure you have as well. So, Don, thanks so much for coming on, man. Uh, we'll have to find another another good old war movie to dive into one of these days. Well, I'll be happy to come back for it. Thanks for having me. All right, Don. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And remember, if you're listening here on the public feed, that means you're only getting about two thirds of the conversation because every one of these interviews goes approximately 30 minutes longer in what is called the Smoke Filled Room bonus segment. To get the complete version of every episode, just become a subscriber to The Mark Claire Show. You can do so on Patreon, on Subscribestar, on Rockfin. You can find all the links you need over at markclair.com. That's markclair, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Until next time, my friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Uh-huh.